This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the CMO Spotlight. With insight from top executives on how to address the key challenges facing the business world and the marketing industry. Here are your hosts, Catherine Hayes and Jenny Rooney. And welcome to CMO Spotlight. I'm Catherine Hayes. The CMO Spotlight airs the last Friday of every month from 8, 9 a.m. Eastern and replaying during the first week of the new month to bring you fresh, firsthand insights on how these amazing top CMOs of our time are managing all things marketing, all things advertising, social, on on and on, especially in this uh, ever-evolving market. I'm Catherine Hayes. I'm the co-author of Beyond Advertising, Creating Value Through All Customer Touchpoints, written with Wharton professor Jerry Wind, and with input from over 200 academics from around the world that we worked with at the Wharton Future of Advertising program for 10 years. And I'm Jenny Rooney. I'm the editor of the CMO Network at Forbes. And it's always my great pleasure to join you every month, Catherine, for the show and to get some great uh, CMOs on the show and talking about some of the biggest issues that are of uh, most importance to the industry right now. Thank you so much. That's It's wonderful to have you to, to tap into your CMO network and to bring us um, another couple of great guests for today. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about the show. We'll be talking with Peter Weingard. He's the Vice President of Brand Strategy and Content at West Elm. And then also we'll be talking to Catherine Hernandez-Blades. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer at Aflac. So with that, um, we'd love to welcome to our show Peter Weingard. Welcome. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Catherine. So great to have you. Thanks for being here. So please, uh, we'd like to start our show with, uh, we think marketers are the most interesting. They have usually the most interesting uh, career journeys along the way that brings them to this uh, field of hope, we like to think of it. So <laughs> if you could just start by sharing a little bit about how you came to your current position and what were sort of the key milestones along the way. Wow, I'd love to. And I think actually you summed up the role of the CMO so perfectly in your intro because it is all things changing and all touch points, all at once. And and I think perhaps my career journey reflects that in, in some ways. I started off in advertising, a very traditional place to learn, learn the fundamentals of marketing. And while there, I witnessed sort of dramatic changes in how we were speaking to customers and how brands wanted their agencies to, um, to become uh, partners with them. Uh, it was the emergence of the Internet still in its infancy, but you could see already opening up was this um, entirely new channel, which was going to disintermediate a lot of what agencies had done so well. Um, the tools that you have now in your, in your, basically in your pocket with your iPhone allow you to edit video, create beautiful documents, and distribute things globally uh, in an instant. And uh, you could see the value that agencies had provided for so long was, was changing. Mm. Um, I moved from there into much more digital-centric roles with uh, some very large companies, SFX, which eventually became known as Live Nation, the, the largest concert producer and promoter and marketer in the world, uh, where I oversaw saw um, customer data and digital direct marketing. And that was my first real exposure to interesting uh, segmentations and how we could look at behaviors in different ways using data. Um, and I think ever since then, data has been uh, a big part of my life and a big part of my career. So, so Peter, just um, prior, you're at West Elm now, of course, and just prior, uh, you were at New York Public Radio, and obviously there had been such an evolution there. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of your achievements there and some of what you were focused on? I'd love to. I was the CMO at New York Public Radio. We we're one of the, uh, we're probably the largest uh, public radio um, node in the public radio ecosystem. And I'm a big fan. There, Listen all the oh, time. Thank you. Well, you know, if you love broadcast and you love uh, podcasting and you love uh, sort of creativity and audio, then that's one of the most magnificent um, places one could work. And like a lot of businesses, it found itself. Uh, going through a tremendous amount of change mm-hmm. as the as the world is changing around it, and I'm proud to be part of changing, uh, you know, turning this 94 year old 
traditional broadcaster into a digital audio powerhouse. Um, over the time that I was there, we really grew our podcast business to uh, command half of all U.S. podcast listeners. Wow. We're getting about 45 million downloads a month on that, and, and also grew to be uh, among the 15th largest digital audio streamers in the U.S., which puts us alongside behemoths like Spotify and Pandora and iHeart, which is a pretty amazing Huge. accomplishment for a rather small and scrappy nonprofit. <laughs> mm-hmm. To be sure. Which, so which years were you there? I was there from uh, 2012 to 2015. So a, a lot happening within that time <laughs> period in terms of the evolution of it all. Um, and so after that? Uh, well, after that, that only ended a couple of weeks ago, and I've now uh, stepped into my new role here at West Elm, uh, which is going to be an exciting new adventure for me. If you talk about all things change and all points of, of customer contact, uh, I'm living it here. You know, one thing that really attracted me to to, to here is after a 25-year career in uh, mostly media information technology where I was marketing and packaging sort of the ephemeral it's really nice to work with something that's physical, yeah. that actually manufacture, design, and sell. I've heard CMO say that that it's it's actually fun to to have an actual you know physical, um, tangible product to sell and to to be marketing and building a brand for. So so that I can I can see that. But it is quite a departure from what you were doing before. Um, how do you connect those dots? Well, there are a lot of dots to be connected. <laughs> At the end of the day, our roles as marketers are 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 rather transferable because it's about being the the voice of the customer, understanding the marketplace, and then connecting the dots internally. I I like that you use that expression because I think a lot of what I really do and have done at every role is be that conduit between strategy and execution, Mm -hmm. that the marketing teams are the ones who have to connect the dots within the organization, connect the needs of finance, in this case, and merchandising, content creators with the customer and find how do we make the most frictionless direct path between a customer's needs and the things that we do to supply to fulfill those needs. So let's talk really quickly about that because, you know, this whole thing about, you know, owning the customer and CMOs now are, you know, um, expected to be truly business growth drivers within organizations right now and that what they all fall back to is this reality that they own the relationship with the customer, right? They they own that voice. They're the proxy for the for the customer and consumer in, in any given organization. That's always been the case, though. So talk a little bit about specifically from your perspective, you know, how you think, how you have seen that reality evolve um, and change over the years and sort of where are we now vis-a-vis that particular component of marketing? Let's say in the early days of my career, Um, the voice of the customer was usually the result of some large study that you did that took six months to do Mm. that was delivered in a gigantic deck, which ended up on my desk and probably went immediately into a file cabinet. Whereas (laughs) now my interactions with the customer are minute by minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have the world's largest focus group 24-7 running on social media where I could interact and read uh, the comments of, you know, billions of citizens all the time. I could throw out test stimuli anytime. And so my, uh, my, my sort of interaction with the realities of the marketplace are accelerated and constant. And, and so now we have the, the opposite problem that we mm. might have had early on, which is now I have so much data I lack often insight and the time to digest the trends and, and then uh, facilitate changes in what we're doing to meet them. Mm-hmm. You know, I always listen or think, Catherine, about the, the the smaller, the mid-sized businesses, you know, who might be listening to the show and, and thinking about, you know, what kind of takeaways they could take from sort of this perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, Peter, how would you, you know, what would you say to somebody who is just kind of either just starting out or had a smaller business and trying to sort of harness a lot of these these um, strategies that you're talking about, right, in terms of um, the data component, the customer relationship, you know, sort of what would be sort of just some, some quick advice for, for folks just in this particular vein of marketing? 
Well, sure. I think everybody is surprised how willing customers are to tell you about your business mm -hmm. and how willing they are to come in. And it doesn't require a lot of fancy and sophisticated technology. One of the things we used to do at New York Public Radio that I'm you know, quite proud of was very simply send out emails to people on our email list and invite them in for coffee and say, we just want to hear wow. from you what you think. And I'd gather up 20 or so people. They'd come in, put them in the conference room. They get there excited. They get to meet uh, the, you know, the people they hear on the radio and get a little tour of the station. And, and it then, is a very cool physical space that that the station houses so that's very cool oh yeah yeah so and they can see some you know fun things going on but then you know surprisingly uh they don't hold back their opinions once you get them in the room <laughs> and they let you know quite 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 succinctly what they what they like what they don't like and what you need to change even though they're looking you right in the eye so you don't need a research company you don't need to do formal focus groups to talk to your customers. Now, hang on um, just a second. I, I, I'm, we're sitting here in, in the, the heart of academia here on campus, and so I do, I do have to ask from a research perspective, how do you think about that 20 people and listening to those 20 people from the standpoint of you know, statistical uh, realities of, of, of the validity of, of those insights? How do you know those are the right 20 people or it's only their input? How do you how do you normalize that against across all of your listening base? Well, sure. I think that's a fair question. <laughs> and, and first, you, you, know, you never stop with that first 20. You keep on asking. Of and course. I, you know, if you've done, anyone who has done qualitative research, sure. you know, focus groups, you're never talking to yep. more than 12 people anyway, right? Yep. And you do three or four of those groups. And after the third one, you start to see the patterns mm. emerge because they keep saying the same things over and over again. Right. Um, how many do I need to have before I have a statistically viable sample? I couldn't say. But I think a lot of marketing, uh, even though it's, it's extremely scientific, a lot of it is the art of listening. And you could hear in what people say and by watching their body language uh, what's important and what's not. And the patterns emerge, I think, rather quickly. You know, and then you could also tie that, you know, accompany that with the vast amounts of data that are at scale in social. So if you have a brand, even a rather small brand, that people are talking about, or you can get people to talk about, um, you get, um, you sort of will get your scale there. I love the idea of the art of listening because um, it, it seems like, the people who are willing to come to your station and talk to you, of course, they're going to be the fans and they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, I listen to you guys all the time. I would love to come be there in person and, you know, sort of get a glimpse of some of the hosts. So essentially, you're talking with people who really care about your brand and who are vested in it, I think. And so to your point of listening to two or three groups and starting to hear see some patterns and what they're passionate about and hear their tone of their voice, that's got to be very helpful in not only the decisions that you make, but as you were talking before about connecting the dots throughout the rest of the organization um, to be able to make your case in terms of changes or uh, updates that you want to be making. That's something our president here has said, the president of West Elm, encouraged everybody to go spend time in the stores, right? And like every marketer, you want to be in your product and be understanding it um, by just walking around our store and watching customers and hearing their interactions and listening in on their conversations is another sort of wonderful secret focus group. And again, any, any business that has some kind of physical location uh, is getting feedback all the time if they're listening. It's interesting because I think that's why we're seeing a lot of um, companies that started as online peer plays, which is what we use, the term we yeah. used back in 1999, 2000, frankly. But anyway, they're um, sort of that new generation of those kinds of companies are um, direct-to-consumer companies, what do you want to call them, are, you know, opening physical spaces, right? And they're creating these experience centers. <laughs> they're, they're they're creating opportunities. And it's all in line with what we heard at Can too, is, you know, this sort of, I feel like there was a, an obsession with data, an obsession with digital, and now I feel like the word human came up so much at, at the Can Lion Festival of, of Creativity, which is the big global advertising conference every year. And, you know, I was just struck by that word human and how many times the word human and people and person came up instead of target and audience and consumer consumer or customer. So, you know, it just feels like that's where everybody's sort of uh, refocusing right now. And I will, I use that word intentionally refocusing because certainly it's always been a, a priority. Um, that's a really good point. I've always really hated demographics. Somebody once in a, in, a, in, a, in a convention of some sort showed a slide that I loved. It showed two different individuals, and it showed you how 
they're the same age, had the same income, right. were born in the same place, yeah. had the same number of children, and on and on, all the things were the same. And then they reveal one of them is Prince Charles and the other one is Ozzy Osbourne. Nice. Well, and you realize the fallacy of trying to put people into those kinds of boxes. Yeah, and that's why we're, we're moving from you know hyper customized to hyper personalized, and you know we're finally realizing that 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 uh, that hope of of uh, one to individual you know marketing. Talk a little bit about you know Pat, Peter. I know you have some um, real and 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 Catherine and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, um, given your experience and given your background and given the industry that you've been sort of working in, you, you bring some real credibility and um, perspective to this concept of 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 audio, right? And how a lot of marketers these days are sort of hitching into the reality that. That voice and audio, I mean, those are obviously going to be huge components moving forward for um, for brand engagement. Talk a little bit about sort of your perspective on this, you know, from a, from a top line um, starting point, and then we can kind of drill in a little bit deeper, just maybe some examples of how CMOs need to be thinking about um, best best leveraging this 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 kind of uh, asset. Thank you. I mean, I think audio is the forgotten sense in a lot of ways, uh, maybe because computers have been screen-based for so long um, and television was such a visual medium that we've become, as marketers, obsessed with, with the visual and mm-hmm. forgotten all about um, audio. But if you look around any town and you see everybody walking around with earbuds in their ears, you realize that how important audio actually is. And one of the great, um, I think, benefits of audio, besides its ubiquity, is that it's a particularly intimate uh, space when you you're when you're listening to somebody carefully, as our listeners are right now mm-hmm. uh, to the show. But also because you're not providing a hundred percent of the information, uh, the mm-hmm. visual component is missing. You're, you're you're describing a scene, something we did so well right in public radio making that come to life. It forces your brain to kind of fill in the missing information. You're sort of imagining what the person looks like. You're imagining the environment as they describe the scene. You're putting it together in your mind. And I think that forces you to become more engaged with it. You have mm-hmm. to pay attention. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not listening, you'll miss something. Mm-hmm. And you What? <laughs> and you have to go back. Sorry. Jenny, pay attention. Um, and, and really fill in the blanks versus if, if you're sort of watching, you can, you can visually sort of be looking off and, and not miss as much. So it, it, it is that much more engaging. I think you're right. In fact, we've had uh, detractors of podcasting say, like, well, the reasons they don't listen as often is because you really need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And it's so much of a lean forward, uh, right. lean in uh, medium, which is wonderful and, and, and really great for advertisers because people are listening to your message. So what does this all mean for, mar- for marketing, for CMOs? I mean, talk a little bit about, can you share some sort of um, anecdotes or examples of um you know, how, how and why, you know, investments should be made specific to this strategy? Yeah, I just ran recently a, uh, a meetup in New York called Auditorium that was all about branding and sound. And uh, one of uh, the invited guests was a man named uh, Tyler Gray, who works at uh, Edelman, and he was the co-author of a book called Sonic Boom, which if you're interested, I would recommend that book. And they've talked a lot about uh, how sound influences what we buy and how we think and how we feel. Um, and there's so many anecdotal examples that are, that are really interesting. One is um, you could find this on YouTube. Somebody was able to post a, uh, the final scene in the first episode of Star Wars with, the, with John uh, Williams' score stripped out. So it's just the video and right. sort of the, the talking and that kind of thing. And it looks really clunky and long <laughs> and kind of dull. And then you can watch it again with the sound in it, the sweeping score, and it's sort of triumphant and heroic and emotional. And you realize like, how important that one element is in shaping the experience that you have with it. So for a marketer, a great example is Chili's, who built their brand around the sound of the sizzling fajitas. And, you know, they weren't the first restaurant to serve fajitas. They're certainly not the last, and you might argue they're not the best. But (laughs) what they realized was that sound, there was like a theater to it, that when the plate comes out from the kitchen and it's sizzling and you're walking past the the patrons, they hear the sound first, and and it draws their attention to the waiter. They see the smoke, and then they smell the aroma, and the whole thing created an experience. 
So and you start you know, to salivate. Part of that. <laughs> Am I making you hungry? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's what sound can do. It has that power. Like the ice cream truck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect example. And so how the other, obviously, major trend right now, in addition to, to podcasting, uh, is voice-activated um, devices, Amazon, Alexa, the, the Google Home, the, those sorts of things. How do you see this connecting? And I think uh, NPR. By the way, I also want to mention that um, for anybody who's interested, Tyler Gray, uh, the author of Sonic Boom, whom you mentioned, um, was actually on one of our sister radio shows, Marketing Matters. So for our listeners, they can probably look for that podcast of ours um, on, our, on our website. Um, but back to uh, the audio devices, how do you see these two coming together, the importance of, of what you hear and then also what you can say so that it's a whole new medium for inter- interface versus as you were saying screens. Right, it is, um, and I think just as if you if you have any young children and you see them go up to like a TV screen and they try to swipe at it and are, are enlarged, <laughs> right. you know they use all those gestures. I think pretty soon you're going to have children talking to their refrigerator. Because yeah, they're seeing their parents speaking to appliances all the time. I mean, I think audio is going to be the next, um, you know, important interface. Um, you know, as predicted by every science fiction film ever, people talk to computers. Mm. Computers respond in natural language. I know that Google's making huge investments in this as well. Um, and I, I saw a statistic that by uh, 2020, 50% of search will be voice-driven, um, so marketers take note. Yeah, uh, We were seeing a lot of growth of listening on uh, the smart speaker systems. Um, it still makes up a tiny percentage of, mm-hmm. of people's homes. But the other effect they were having that I thought was interesting is they were people who did own them. The speaker was becoming sort of like the center of the home in the way the radio might have been in the 1920s. That people were taking the earbuds out of their ears and listening together as a group, as mm-hmm. a family, to whatever the entertainment was. Hmm. So as these things become more intertwined, I think we're going to see um, audio become that uh, shared experience again. And especially for marketers, as, as Jenny was asking and thinking about it, it, it really is takes a different mindset to understand how to design the user, the auditory user experience. Mm-hmm. I know there's there's a lot of firms that are popping up. I found one on um you know, I was doing research for the show that that's that's all they do is, and there's a whole science behind it in terms of tone and manner and pace and, you know, some voices as we know drive us crazy and other ones we find very soothing or very excitable or you know all those sorts of things. So, the the considerations of it seem really, really, really uh, important and complex. Yeah, if I could plug a, a, another podcast, there's one called Twenty Thousand Hertz which is all about um, sound and the role it plays across everything, entertainment and so forth. And they did a piece on Muzak in the early days and the mm. studies that they did about it. It was originally invented or, or it was intended for use in the office space. And they found that they could like increase productivity by over the course of the days, increasing the tempo of the songs. Hmm. And then they would sort of ease it back as you got towards the end of the day so people didn't get too tense and nervous. But um, I know there's a, quite a bit of science around how they've used sound to influence shopping behavior um, in different kinds of retail environments. I know Jonah Berger sound- is famous for the one that he did with um, the priming effect of German music in a store <laughs> and how people ended up buying German wine instead of, you know, that they – He it was fascinating research that he did not too long ago. Yeah. Well, I think of all the places where you could affect environment if you if you run a business mm-hmm. from the hold, you know, the customer service, audio environment to you know the the, the uh, in store experience or, or product usage experience. Think of how like electronics often have signature sounds: the sound of the Macintosh starting up, the sound of AT and T's ring, you know, tone, and then of course the things like you know Sonic IDs, the little logos that you you know put at the end of the thing, like Intel inside, that little marker, a little signpost that reminds somebody of the brand. You know, it's interesting. I mean, just like everything else, it's going to be interesting to see how it all falls out with regard to who who ends up owning that that auditory audio experience, right? So if you could imagine a refrigerator, for example, you know, is it the... Is it the Tropicana orange juice brand that's going to own some sort of, you know, um, um, auditory? 
audio uh, transaction or experience with <laughs> with the it'll have it with the person voice, at least in its own personality or will the refrigerator brand you know what i mean i mean it's it's going to be it a, depends a, on who you, if you're hearing from the eggs it's one thing if you're hearing <laughs> from uh, which could make it you know that much more interesting it's yes. actually possible to get yeah. the amazon echo to talk to the google home really yeah <laughs> That makes a big difference. But it it has, I mean, in talking with a lot of marketers, it has made them think very differently with the, with the advent of, yeah. of um, the uh, voice-activated devices to really think differently about what their sonic branding is. Yeah. And there's, there are also companies that they don't, I mean, if you, if you, a lot of companies don't realize just how disjointed all of their um, auditory branding is that that how the phone is answered what the recording is what customer service sounds like we all know having tried to call somebody a lot of times to get that same message over and over that becomes annoying and so by the time somebody actually answers the phone you've been hearing this recording and and you're in a worse mood than when you called in the first place it's just one more component so make sure you're having your holistic consistency together did Um, you work with anybody when you were at npr in doing those sorts of things at wnyc well, we did create uh, on WNYC the sort of hero tones that run underneath our, uh, our top-of-the-hour IDs. I think one of the most interesting things we did while I was there was uh, we affected the sound of the air by changing the kinds of voiceovers we had. We used to use professional voiceovers for yes. those IDs. And as we're New York's home radio station and we're supposed to reflect the sound of the city, well, if you've walked down any street and... In, in New York, or especially in, in Queens or the Bronx, or it, people don't sound like professional voiceover artists. And we started uh, doing events, uh, activations when we'd be out in the parks or and whatever, uh, and we'd ask people to like step up to a mic that we brought with us and read uh, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the top so of the RIT. Yeah, that's great. So now when you listen to the station, you hear all kinds of accents, right. all kinds of uh, levels of ability to speak English, mm-hmm. um, but it's a wonderful stew of sounds and voices that sounds like your backyard. Uh, and we actually um, put underneath that a music bed or a sound bed of city sounds, the subway rattling by, nice. uh, the pigeons flapping away from a park, the sound of a diner, a coffee shop. And it, so we created this little audio environment that's very subtle, and it's only mm-hmm. you know, a minute or two, an hour, but uh, woven with everything else, it starts to help tell that story. It'll be interesting to see how you bring that then to West Elm, and uh, we, we will be paying attention, close attention. In fact, we'll be tuning in. Oh, Jenny. <laughs> Ooh, very good. I was going to say stay tuned. But but we did, you know, we have um, maybe just one more question here. Sure. And that is, what what are you thinking about? What are you most excited about? You're, you're just new on your yeah. West Elm job, so we can't really quiz you too much about what all your plans and, and what you've accomplished. But what are you most excited about as you uh, start this new venture for yourself in your career? Oh, I'm, I'm excited about so much beyond the beauty of selling something that itself is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, we source all of our products through sustainable efforts. Um, and there's a story to be told there mm. about uh, our, the social consciousness of the company mm-hmm. and that we're trying to create a more beautiful world as well as creating beautiful your, a beautiful home. It's great to walk into a company where there's that kind of potential for for the brand, right? And that kind of untold story, um, and uh, and having that opportunity, I would imagine, is is every marketing executive's dream, <laughs> right? To pull yeah, that out. and um, you know, as we were talking about experiential retail, I think there's a lot to happen there. There's already mm-hmm. a lot happening at, mm-hmm. in our stores. Um, we're very uh, involved with local maker communities and uh, the ability to turn the footprint of stores around the world into centers where people could come and share uh, uh, around design and making things that are beautiful um, is also a very exciting part of the story. It's a, it's a, it's such a wonderful time in that regard relative to retail how mm-hmm. and in the most creative way, similar to what you were talking about with auditory, if you start to think about how the sound of pigeons can really create an environment and you can so much opportunity to create and be creative in that regard. Same for you with uh, with your physical spaces and bringing it all together. Very exciting. 
Yeah, and it brings it all back home to, to the beginning, which is, you know, it's about connecting all the dots that you just described. That businesses, or I should say marketers particularly, no longer live in this one world of about um, marketing communications. It's about how do I connect all these different facets of what the business can be mm-hmm. into a holistic brand, lifestyle brand. Peter, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure having you with us today and hope to keep in touch and best of luck in your, your new role. Thanks, Peter. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Peter Weingart is the Vice President of Brand Strategy and Content Innovation at West Elm. Next up, we have Catherine Hernandez-Blades. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer at Affleck. Stay tuned. You're listening to the CMO Spotlight on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again are Catherine Hayes and Jenny Rooney. Welcome back to Marketing to CMO Spotlight. Uh, we were formerly on Marketing Matters. That's a great other show you should be listening to, but this is the CMO Spotlight. I'm Catherine Hayes. I'm here with the wonderful, fabulous Jenny Rooney. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Catherine. The same could be said about you. So I'm here with the wonderful, <laughs> fabulous Catherine Hayes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Jenny is the Forbes Network, Forbes CMO. CMO Network Editor. Thank yeah, you so much. Forbes. And I'm co-author of um, Beyond Advertising, a really great book that we encourage you to to take a look at. Today, we have joining us for this next segment of our show um, uh, from a company that will all be familiar to you. Um, and her name is Catherine Hernandez-Blades. She's the Senior Vice President and Chief Brand Officer at Aflac. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine and Jenny. I love the show, and it's lovely to be here and speak with you today. Thank Great. you so much. So we're, it's all going to be confusing since we have two Catherines, but um, <laughs> and I see you spelled yours with a C as well, so that's that's great. Doubly confusing, right? Yeah. So we'd like to start the show off with um, you sharing with us a little bit about your career journey as a marketer and coming to this role at Aflac. Um, tell us how you got started and maybe some of the high points along the way. You bet. I actually started my career in television news. At 19, I was producing a morning news program called Uh Good Morning Acadiana. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's great. And half of it was in English and half of it was in French, which made it very interesting. But uh, from there, I decided that even though that's what I thought I wanted to do my whole life after doing it for a couple of years, Mm -hmm. realized it wasn't my calling. So I was very fortunate to end up in a great PR opportunity uh, in New Orleans, the only public company based in New Orleans at the time, and literally banging out press releases for mergers and acquisitions. And from there, I moved up, and then I accepted a gubernatorial appointment to fill someone else's term, where I was executive director of the Seafood Promotion and Marketing Board for the state of Louisiana, which in essence, made me an undersecretary in wildlife and fisheries. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> great. Yeah, well, if you saw the other gentlemen, uh, particularly during hunting season in Louisiana, they looked more the part than I did. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but we had, a, we had a great time doing that. And then from there, I spent 10 years in aerospace and defense, three years mm-hmm. at a tech company as their chief marketing and communications officer, and then came into Aflac about four and a half years ago as the chief communications officer. And then I accepted responsibility for marketing based on my past experience last October. Excellent. Excellent. What a journey. That's fantastic. What a background. And how, um, so you've been there and how long have you been in this particular role? Since last October. Last October. So what, talk a little bit about your inheriting, you know, the marketing and and brand oversight. Um, What, you know, what, what shifted for you personally in terms of your mandate there? Well, it's interesting. We have had technically five CMOs in five years. Wow. So we have a lot of work to do with the team. We have a lot of work to do around brand voice, the voice of the doc. And then there's the general marketplace that has changed so much. For example, when we all took Marketing 101, it was about product placement, promotion, and price. Mm -hmm. The four Ps. Yes. I would submit today it's about experience, environment, engagement, and exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And technology is how you get the experience. Activations are how you create the environment. Authenticity is how you generate engagement. And partnerships are how you get to the exchange. And those are the things we're holistically looking at. We've got a lot of research going on. Frankly, Catherine and Jenny, I have an enviable 
brand health score, my awareness score, mm. depending on what index you look at is over 93%. That's wow. crazy. Just crazy. It's crazy. But if you dig deeper, people know the brand and they know the doc. Mm-hmm. So how do you leverage mm. those icons to drive growth? getting deeper into the sales funnel, getting a consideration. And you do that through connection and through relevance and through education because we're doing a lot of research right now because research should always drive the strategy. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be long-winded, but I'm so passionate about this. Uh, but what you get when that happens is you learn what your customers really know about your product. And we know they know the duck. We know they think we're an insurance company. But then if you dig deeper, they perhaps think we're an insurance company or a homeowner's insurance company. And that's not what we do. So t- tell us, because I th- I'm sure that you, if you could sort of just let everybody listening know what Affleck is focused on and all the um, all the offerings. Sure. Our products and services, um, actually our very first product was a cancer product. Wow. And you have to go back to the history of the company when you think it was founded by three brothers who saw their father pass away from cancer and saw the financial toll it took on, on the family, which is why all of our policies, whether it's accident, hospital indemnity, Unless otherwise assigned, the cash goes directly to the consumer. We don't pay hospitals. We don't pay doctors. We pay you. And most of the time, we pay you in one day, which is also unheard of. Very interesting. And is this, I mean, is this, this is new information to me. I did not know that, um, that, that backstory. So talk, I mean, if that's not evident to the average consumer, then what, you know, how are you? How, how do you look at that story and, and want to sort of bring that out and, and get people to understand that about the company? What's well, so funny, if I could just share a brief case study with you that I shared with our board of directors yesterday, as a matter of fact. We love it, breaking news. Thank you. Oh, well, good. But then I'll, then I'll share my new campaign with you after that, Excellent. our new campaign. Uh, but if I could give you a case study on this journey that we embarked on in January of 2016, another thing that people will not know about us is the fact that we've had a 23-year commitment to pediatric cancer causes. Over that time, we've donated $125 million to the research and treatment of pediatric cancer. And we never talked about it outside of this region. Hmm. So after a year and a half of working with my CEO, promising him that we would not be boastful about it and right. that we'd be very elegant and we wouldn't look like we were exploiting these families at the worst possible times of their lives, that we would accomplish two things. We would inspire other companies to do good, and we would elevate the cause of childhood cancer to a national conversation. That's very important because of all government funding in the United States, less than 4% goes to pediatric cancer. Wow. I mean, all government funding towards cancer, I should say. And when people always ask me what's next, what brands will have to do next, it's for me, you have to go from support to advocacy. And our position is, yes, my duck has a left wing and a right wing, but 4% is not enough. So we took the Reputation Institute data, 30 years worth of data practically, and we looked at the seven dimensions of reputation the 23 attributes behind those seven dimensions. And we realized our most authentic stories came from governance, workplace, and citizenship, which are basically the CSR elements and attributes. So in January of 26, we started talking about this. And we mapped it out with the Reputation Institute. We have seen a steady increase in reputation, sure, some ups and downs, but overall a steady increase. So what I did yesterday for the board to help make the business case for CSR, now the SEC attorney will make me say this, I can't prove causation, can't even prove correlation, but when I overlay over our Reputation Institute graph of scores over the past oh, two and a half years, 
If I overlay employee engagement, it goes up at the same rate. If I overlay media sentiment, sentiment, it's identical. If I overlay social sentiment, it's almost identical. If I lay sales there, you see the correlation. Well, you don't see the correlation because I can't say that. You can see the trajectory. You can see um, you can see both of them moving in the right direction. Let's put it that way. And then if I overlay the stock price on all of that, you'll see that same directional activity. So it's it's very exciting and it just demonstrates that you really have to have all the elements and they have to be authentic and that frankly support isn't going to be enough. Brands are going to be expected to take a stand and advocate. And so how how did you go about doing that? So in other words, you're saying that you took uh, a philanthropic effort that had been underway for a while and just hadn't been talked about and then put some marketing heft, some PR heft behind it. Um, and how did you go about that? And how do you think that that impacted without talking about causality or uh, correlation? <laughs> but um, how do you think see that impacted, for example, your employee base? Was that a big part of the communications plan? It, it, it was a huge part of the effort. You know, keep in mind all of my constituents. I've got 75,000 independent sales agents who are licensed to sell my product, and a third of them can sell my competitor's product. We have an entire broker channel that we communicate to regularly that needs to be communicated to a little bit differently. Although it's in alignment, their care abouts are different. So what we lead with might be a bit different. We have shareholders. We have employees. We have, again, customers, right? And we never lose sight of the customer. But we created opportunities for employees to engage and to go to the Aflac Cancer Center and engage with the children. But what have we went about doing, frankly, was elevating our regional conversation to a national conversation by partnering with the Washington Post to be able to host an event called Chasing Cancer, where we brought the brightest minds in research, treatment, you know, journalism, celebrities, science. And uh, we did several other events with Atlantic Media very successfully, and it was on Washington Ideas Forum for the first time last year on the agenda. So we're very proud of the hmm. attention we've been able to generate toward the cause. But when you talk about marrying the brand to that, done um, particularly since last October, is we've evolved our brand icon. And you will see the voice of the duck changing. And I don't mean the person whose voice we use for the duck, but the actual voice of the duck will become more philanthropic. You'll see a pivot there. Wow. Uh, yes, because... In January, we launched my special FLAC duck. And this is really risky to take an icon that you have and bring it to life. With a very distinctive personality. Mm -hmm. With a very distinctive personality that is designed to be a comforting companion for children with cancer. It's a social robot designed to help children communicate their feelings What's a social robot? What's a social robot? Well, in our case, it's a duck. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, it has many capabilities. I'll just outline a few. We have these feeling cards, for example, that when you touch the feeling card to the duck's chest, it will act out the emotion. So I'm a child life specialist. Hmm. I walk into the hospital room that morning. Instead of asking a three-year-old, how are you feeling? I can ask them, how is your duck feeling? And they can pick up either their silly icon, which makes the duck sing, or they can pick up their happy icon or their angry icon, or we have a green one if they're not feeling well and it makes a kind of womp womp sound. Uh, we can also engage in medical play through the robot. Uh, for example, one of the most painful things that happens to a child during treatment is to have their port accessed. Well, my special F-Lock duck also has a port. So you are able to uh, administer chemo through the same size syringe and everything on your duck. And what happens is when the port is attached, the duck gains a heartbeat and starts deep rhythmic breathing with the child and then has a snuggle feature that it actually moves and snuggles up to the child. Wow. So now where are you deploying this? I mean, you know, where, how, how broadly is this being deployed, I guess? 
So thank you for that question. Um, again, this is my most favorite project ever, clearly, that I've had the opportunity to work on in my career. Mm-hmm. We have committed to putting one in the hands of every child newly diagnosed with cancer in the United States starting in January 2018 um, at no cost to the child or the family. The only requirement is that the request must come from a hospital, from a certified child life specialist. Hmm. Interesting. And how? What are the numbers? What's uh, what? How 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 many is that on? There are approximately sixteen thousand children in the United States diagnosed with cancer every year. Wow. And um, it will be age appropriate for approximately ten thousand of those children. So talk a little bit about. I mean, from a broader marketing strategy standpoint. And I mean, I know that we're not. You know. You know. You're being very careful to to use this in a way that's truly authentic. It obviously you know, goes back to sort of a history there that you have. Um, and it, you know, you certainly the, don't want to exploit it, as as you mentioned earlier, but how are you connecting the dots, you know, and how is this sort of investment obviously then going to translate into, you know, um, a new direction for the brand and incre- continued growth and, and, and awareness and, and everything obviously that, that is, you know, part of your mandate. Absolutely. So if you go back to the four P's to the four E's, I mean, obviously, our technology in this particular instance is going to create a great experience for the children. The environment we're creating, we have done several things, um, some in partnership with the Academy of Country Music. As a matter of fact, uh, Chris Young has been uh, very helpful to us in doing everything from creating Lifting Lives Matter, which is um an AFLAC Academy of Country Music Award that goes to a child life specialist, particularly one that encourages music therapy. Um, And then when you go to When you get a promotion, um, the engagement, uh, the authenticity piece, we could have worked on a million other projects, but we chose to lend our brand icon We chose to pivot the voice of that icon. We also chose to create something that would be meaningful and relevant to people. And then the partnership pieces, we're partnering with Children's Miracle Network to get these things out, the Children's Oncology Group, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But it all ties back to our core mission. As a matter of fact, another part of what we're doing is um, what we're calling CSR in a box. Remember those 75,199 folks that I told you about earlier? We are actually rolling out a roadmap for them at teaching them how to do CSR, which is, um, and I know we're talking a lot Corporate more about CSR responsibility, than Mark. right? Co- correct. But but what it does is it it mobilizes seventy five thousand people to go out in underserved communities and mostly diverse communities and make a difference with consistent messaging, allowing them to build their own brands because we know this works. We know this is CSR is a lever against marketing activities. You know, we've got the data to prove that it works, but it works for us because of the authenticity piece. If we had just started yesterday, it it wouldn't be credible. Sure. So you mentioned earlier, too, you've got a new campaign that I think just launched or is launching soon. Um, t- talk about how all this sort of ties in from a, you know, kind of broad brand standpoint um, um, with the new campaign. Oh, sure, you bet. Because what this research is telling us is they know our duck and they know our name. So what we need to do, if we're going to drive them from awareness to consideration down that funnel, we've got to do it through connection, which CSR allows us to do because it's a very high-touch opportunity, and through knowledge and education. But if you don't connect, it doesn't become relevant and you can't get to knowledge and education. So our intent is to drive company growth, leverage that 93% um, brand awareness score, and really work on the consideration score. What we've learned is people say they know what AFLAC is, but we're going to spend the next year telling them what AFLAC isn't. It's not car insurance, it's not homeowner's insurance, it's, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to come back and we're going to tell them what AFLAC is. Okay. So, And that's in a brand advertising campaign. That Have you worked with an agency for, for New Creative or, or where are you there? 
Yes, we work with uh, Publicis Seattle okay. on our advertising creative. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had a long-standing history with them. There was a lot of news in the pipeline because we did RFP it last fall, and we came back to Publicis. Uh, it's just good business hygiene, if you will, to look at these things every few years. And so we're confident in them and their ability and look forward to moving forward with them. Amazing. So we just have a, a couple minutes left, and I wanted to um – tap into your expertise on uh, from a public, public relations perspective, given how extensive you had it and what uh, an amazing award winner you are in this, in this field as well. So what, what advice do you have for our listeners as they're thinking about public relations these days in terms of what's important for people to know? Um, things happen um, always. We, we know that in life. But things can happen even bigger now because of social media and they can uh, you know, impact the company really, really broadly, really, really quickly. What advice do you have for marketers to be ready for that and to get prepared? Absolutely. It is the one thing that keeps us all up at night, I think, because it can go so sideways so quickly. I will give you an example. I was inundated by bots. I mean, my inbox was filled earlier this year, every morning when I came in, because a Hill staffer had tweeted, a very junior level Hill staffer, that we had supported a particular television program through advertising. Hmm. Um, We actually had not, which was even more interesting. Um, So gone are the days of fact-checking, unfortunately. And this got so much traction on Twitter. It literally, I got emails from bots on both sides. There's no way humans could have sent me that many emails. So it had to be technology. And it was absolutely crazy. There's not a whole lot you can do about that, especially when it was such a polarizing issue, other than be transparent and put out the good news and the good work that you're doing to kind of drown out the nonsense. Mm-hmm. Where it becomes relevant, frankly, is when it's a customer. And what I encourage everyone to do is what we do here at AFLAC, which is take it offline as soon as possible and fix the problem. So we have a special escalation group that we send policyholders to that have complained online that try and resolve the problem within 24 to 48 hours. So I love I love the notion of of taking it offline and fixing it, and reacting, and, yeah, yeah, and reacting immediately and the having that sort of thing in place. Um, thanks for that bit of advice, Catherine. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, appreciate your your coming on with us today. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Catherine and Jenny. Hope to uh, keep in touch and and hear how we'll the, see what's next. Hear how <laughs> the new duck is is coming along. That's just wonderful. Catherine Hernandez Blades is the senior vice president and chief brand officer at Affleck. Um, thank you for being on the show with us today, Jenny Rooney, Forbes. CMO Network Editor. Always great to have you. Always great to be here. Thanks also to uh, Michelle Stucker, our producer, and Danielle Bruno, our engineer. Thank you to all the listeners. Please tune in every month, the last Friday of the month at 9 a.m. and then the following week for our uh, replays. We're also on podcast if you go to search on Wharton Business Radio. XM, Sirius XM 132 and find uh, the recordings of the show to keep listening. Thank you so much and have a great day. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.